My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. I'm a sports fan who was looking forward to watching the Summer Olympics, but then something happened that pissed me off. Shikari Richardson is one of the most exciting track and field athletes to come along since Hussein Bolt. She has a great rags to riches story and an effervescence that has enchanted hearts everywhere. She not only breaks records, but was favored to win a gold medal until she tested positive for smoking weed and was thrown off the team. The deed is done, and we can only imagine what might have been. People smoke weed for all kinds of reasons, but performance enhancement? Not so much. One of the criticisms of weed has always been that it is amotivational, that it saps energy. So why disqualify Shikari? Where is the justification beyond the foolish consistency of a rule's a rule, especially when the NBA, NFL, MLB, and NHL have either relaxed their policies or ended cannabis testing entirely? The Olympics Committee continues to wag its judgmental finger to abide by rules that are totally out of line with current medical, legal, or cultural thinking. President Biden says a rule's a rule, but whether he likes it or not, the pendulum has swung in favor of cannabis as a low-impact palliative for any number of ills, like what happened to Shikari losing a parent while training to qualify for the Olympics. The time has come to acknowledge the guilt of our past, including the racist foundation for the prohibition of marijuana, the detrimental social legacy it created and the continued stigmatization of those who turn to it for medical reasons. It's time for the Olympic Committee to level the playing field, rescind the mistakes of the past, and update its rulebook to reflect the world we live in today, not the biased past. We'll miss you, Shikari, but your bold stand puts you in the pantheon of athletes who have made sacrifices for a greater good. Now on to today's guest on the Light Culture Podcast. Verena von Fetten is a certified rule breaker, not because she worked as the digital editorial director of Lucky Magazine or as the founding editor of a James Beard award-nominated site focused on the foodie industry, not because of her stint as a lifestyle editor at the Huffington Post. She's a rule breaker because she chucked a blossoming career in mainstream publishing to launch a print magazine. With print itself an endangered species, she doubled down on rule-breaking and risk-taking by conceiving the magazine with co-founder David Wiener around cannabis. Called Gossamer, it launched in 2017 with the mission to look at the world, travel, design, art, culture, and food through a green lens. We tell stories that channel the mindset of someone having their best high. Welcome, Verena. What a lovely intro. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm happy to have you. You know, I've been trying to get you on for a while, so I'm glad it finally worked out. Thank you. I appreciate the persistence. That's right. It's my middle name. So what's your best <laughs> high? You say you tell stories that channel the mindset of someone having their best high. What would that be for you? My best high is always at the beach. It's like a Saturday or a Sunday or God, even better as if it's a midweek, like playing a little hooky day, you know, like wake up on a Wednesday and just decide today is not for work and a jaunt to the beach, joint or edible. I don't care the format and like just being able to enjoy the sun, sand and high. That's number one. Have you been out there yet this year? No, not yet. I feel like I keep missing the weather, but I'm I'm hoping yeah. to get out this weekend. I was hoping last weekend would be it, but we had a miserable Memorial Day yeah. kickoff to summer weather-wise. So Where would you go? To which beach? Uh, not a beach snob. Any body of water will do for me. So obviously I'm in Brooklyn. 
Jacob Reese, Rockaway, any of them. During the week, I like going to the more residential parts of the Rockaways where it's just, you know, empty, empty beaches, but there's no parking on weekends. So that's my pro tip is if you can get out during the week and go somewhere that you can have the place to yourself. But yeah, I mean, I live in, in Red Hook. I joke that there's actually a little mini beach here over at the pier. There is sand it touches the water, you know, I have yet to, to, yeah, I have yet to go full like bathing suit mode, but I am not averse to it. You're going to do it one day. One day. Is Gossamer picking up where the much loved Lucky left off? Cannabis friendly version of Lucky with pieces from your other jobs thrown in because like lifestyle and design and products and, and things like that. Is it a kind of amalgamation throwing some cannabis on top of it? interesting. I think by nature, my background informs what we do and certainly some aspects of Lucky. And I can get into that a little bit. I think the magazine, if anything, was like a hard pivot away from anything David or I had done. And very intentionally, we met working at the Huffington Post in 2006. We both spent over a decade exclusively almost in digital media in New York, which was a grind and in doing so sort of helped for better for worse write the playbook of what we would now consider some of the problems of digital media the pace the churn seo optimized content the reliance on platforms for traffic and just a whole lot of everyone doing the same thing but pretending they're doing something different David and I were both consulting and freelancing at the time and and trying to think of what we wanted our next move to be. And we felt really strongly we wanted to be able to do something that gave us the most creative flexibility possible. This was 2016, 2017, where we were first conceiving of Gossamer. We fully launched in 2018. And at that time, it was just like, if I see another Hadid on the cover of a magazine, my eyes are going to roll so hard, they're going to fall out of my head and bounce into the beach. And I have nothing against the Hadids. It just was starting to feel like the same. And so we said, what is something that we can do that gives us an entry point into anything, any space, any coverage, any story? And for us, that was cannabis. It was something that we had really bonded over as young co-workers, we had smoked a lot of weed together as a way to decompress. Did you have to sneak out of no. the office or how was no. the situation? I won't speak for David. I don't know if he ever did. I am not a particularly functional smoker. I can be, but that's not how I want to experience it. My work time is usually like largely uh, sober for lack of a better word. So no, but certainly after work or or in the rare pockets when we weren't working, you know, I think we were both being probably 18 hour days at HuffPost then. So we just felt like an opportunity for us, again, to flex our creative muscles and and also expand the, the areas in which we had spent a lot of time covering and creating stories. And, you know, the last thing I'll say on that is that one thing we sort of say internally and sometimes publicly is that weed is often the least interesting part of weed. It's rare that you share a joint with someone and then spend the next hour or two hours talking about weed, maybe a little bit about the strain and how much fun you're having. But at a certain point, the conversation moves on and you're either just giggling about something ridiculous or telling funny stories, or you're watching a show or you're going to an art exhibit or going on a hike or lying on the beach and listening to music. Our thought was, if we use cannabis as our entry point and lens through which we look at the things that are interesting to us and or how they are heightened or made better through the experience of cannabis, the world is sort of our oyster. That I think is also very specific to Gossamer in the framework of a cannabis publication. Probably less than 15, 10% of our content has anything to do with weed. We view it as the entry point or the lens through which we assume our readers are experiencing the magazine. That's why we made a print magazine in the first place. The last thing any of us needs to do is stare at another screen when you're trying to decompress. So we really wanted to create something that felt immersive and that felt like an escape from the everyday world. That's also why we try really hard to make our features evergreen. It's not about hard news. Obviously, we want them to be topical and relevant, but we want it to be something that you could pick up 
six months ago or five years from now and find something that's going to pique your curiosity or make you look at something from a different perspective. Yeah. And I must say it works for me, at least. I also enjoy the emails. Oh, good. (laughs) Another one is products and things to do and experience. Again, back to Lucky, because I just feel that that was such a model and so many people really loved Lucky. And it was one of the few magazines people actually missed when they put it out of business. That is, I think, also my sort of number one, I don't know if it's motto, if it's like a mission statement, a thing that just cycles on and on in my brain with anything I do professionally, but certainly the way David and I have tried to build Gossamer is if you disappeared tomorrow, would anyone miss you? Or would your, whatever you were doing, just be filled by other people? And I think if you can't say that you're doing something different or that someone else is not doing, then it's probably not worth doing. And I think that's also really true on the product side of things. The last thing anyone needs is to make more shit, whether that's products, whether that's content, whether that's a physical magazine. If you can't really say we are doing something so singular that no one else is doing it, I think most people should rethink their business a little bit. Can I ask you a personal question? Go. Were you smoking when you came up with the idea with David? (laughs) No. No? Again, this is like, I really, I have a very strong delineation. No, but you could have just been, you know, shooting the shit and whatever, brainstorming. We were working on some projects together at the time. So I think it really came up like in a coffee shop while we were working. I knew that I was interested in starting something of my own. I was actually more interested in the beauty space. To speak a little bit to my background and what you've said about Lucky, Again, so near and dear to my heart and one of the best places I've ever worked, even though I worked there through its dissolution. I feel like I still have professional PTSD from. It was such a beautiful, smart, communal magazine that genuinely people loved. From there, I I actually went on to focus more specifically on the content to commerce space. So taking the lucky model of, you know, it was people joked that it was a magalog. It was a catalog, basically a shoppable magazine, um, which is just so funny now how early lucky was in a lot of ways for everything that we are talking about now in terms of Instagram being shoppable or platforms and influencers selling their own products. So I went to focus more specifically on that space. I did some work with Into the Gloss and Glossier. I worked at Instagram as a platform. I did some work with ASOS. So a lot around how the stories we tell inform the purchases we make. And so for me, I was thinking, what could I do that uses those skill sets and is something that I'm interested in? And beauty was where my brain kept going, but I didn't necessarily have the right idea. And At some point, David sort of said, you know, I've been thinking about doing something in the cannabis space. I thought he was absolutely insane the first time he mentioned it. Not for him. I was like, that's great. That sounds like a really smart business idea. And, you know, you should get after it. But it certainly felt like something that was just not doable for me from a professional perspective. I think at the time I was actually back doing some consulting at Condé and I just it's like, I don't know that I can walk into the building and, and then tell the people I've been meeting with that I'm going to be unavailable because I'm starting a weed magazine. It felt like a form of professional suicide, for lack of a better description. I just, I thought for sure that no one would ever hire me again. And then the more I thought about that, the angrier I got and the more it appealed to me because I think <laughs> the moment someone tells me you can't do something, I feel obligated to try and do it. I also have always loved a sort of underdog. Those have been the jobs that I've wanted. When I went to Lucky, I knew the writing had been a little bit on the wall, but it felt much more exciting to me to go somewhere that I think when publications or businesses or or anything that you're interested in doing, when they're foundering a little bit is when you have the most flexibility to try something new. And when something is succeeding, people never want to mess with the model. There's a reason, you know, Vogue is very, very, very slowly trying to update (laughs) and get with the program. And it's because what worked for them worked for them for so long that they become so risk averse. And that's true of almost any big brand that's really, really successful. And so the more I thought about it, the more it seemed compelling, the more I also reflected on the fact that someone like me felt so nervous to publicly talk about cannabis. I have an incredible professional network. I think that anyone who has worked for me or that for whom I have worked would have nothing particularly negative to say. I think I have really good references. I 
I work really fucking hard, but I also recognize the other privileges I have. I, I knew there would be a conversation around like former Condé editor, like going into we that might be newsworthy. What that meant for the fact that if I feel like that and I know what I look like and what background I come from, I'm white. I know you said you're doing this on video, but in case people are listening on audio, I am very white (laughs) and I have a support system. I have a community that supports me and I have a professional network that supports me. And what does it mean for people that don't have that? And if I'm scared, it's even worse for others. And so the last piece of the puzzle then was that David had also always been very, very passionate about politics and particularly criminal justice and prison reform. He spent almost two years volunteering at a maximum security prison upstate, and it's just been very invested in those political conversations in a way that has taught me so much because it's just not something I had ever really paid attention to. And when we started talking about cannabis and all of these pieces came together, one, it would be creatively fulfilling. Two, there was yes, potentially a business opportunity here because this is a new industry that people are interested in and everyone smokes weed. Obviously not everyone, but a lot of people smoke weed. It cuts across (laughs) almost everyone or they have a relationship with people who do. And then for it to also feel like there was an opportunity to do some real social good. And I know a lot of companies say that and certainly even not in the cannabis space, every startup and brand is supposed to tout their mission or have some like, you know, ulterior motive that's for the greater good. For any, um, for any and product. a lot of those. Yeah. For everything yeah. <laughs> today, not just cannabis. I mean, everyone yeah. claims to care, right? Right. Exactly. And part of that is marketing. Part of that is the social conditioning that we have to tell ourselves these things. And that's why, you know, we're not capitalists and we're doing this for the greater good. I have a cynic's view on that, but it did feel like there was genuinely an opportunity to try and do something that would allow me to sleep at night. And that was both, again, creatively fulfilling, but on a second level and and not necessarily second to that, but on another level, the idea that we could build a platform, host conversations, tell the stories in a way that were palatable and available and accessible to the people who could potentially actually affect change. That felt really exciting to us. Yeah. So there's a couple of things you said that I want to go back to. One is, you know, how you imagine people would respond. But in fact, from what I saw in an article written in Bustle back in 2018, so many, so many years ago, how Women in media declined to interview you because they had concerns about aligning with the cannabis space. So rather than, oh, wow, isn't this interesting? They go, "Uh oh, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. Yeah, it was truly so. Yes, I think one on the advertising side of things, you know, uh, that's what makes the world go round, right? Certainly that's what makes, you know, editorial go round. We knew that brands would have a hard time feeling comfortable with the cannabis space. Certainly, even from the nuts and bolts of getting a small business off the ground, you're asking for a huge amount of support from your community, whether that's your friends, your family, or just your social media following is. That could be five people, that could be 5,000 people, whatever. Starting a business is a whole lot of just asking for favors and asking for support. I expected it, but didn't quite expect how hard it would be for some people to publicly support what I was doing, even if privately they told me they loved it. And it's still true. You know, I still have people in my network that I would consider friends, that I would consider private supporters who have platforms that I think could make a really big difference in the life of any small business who just say, I'm sorry, I can't touch this because it's weed. I I can't publicly touch this. That's still something I think about, not in a negative way, like not like I begrudge them. It just informs how we think about Gossamer and what we put out into the world. Because the more we talk about weed, obviously, the less stigmatized it gets. But I think often the industry as a whole still forgets like what the conversation around cannabis is like across the country and around the world in pockets where it's not legal or even where it is legal, just depending on your background and your professional setting and whatever you're comfortable with. And I would say most people are still not entirely comfortable talking about cannabis. The media 
we all cover it in a way that it's kind of everywhere. And I think editors themselves are even getting bored with the idea of weed. Like it's not that new. It's not that interesting. <laughs> but I think, you know, a lot of people are still scared. Yeah, I think a part of that is the age gating aspect of it, the legal side and, and the medical side. There's an age. So when you have mm -hmm. a piece of media that goes out to everyone, it's very hard for them to figure out how do I handle this? And I've seen this also from back in the day when at Paper Magazine, when we had liquor ads, for example, and we had to prove to them and do a whole bunch of studies to show that our demographics are over 21. Yeah. And cigarettes before that, before they were outlawed altogether, the government came in and put in all these restrictions around advertising these products. And today, cannabis is sitting in the same space yeah. because of its history and where it had started out as this terrible substance, which it never was. But now they're always trying to make those corrections. I feel that's kind of built into this whole thing and with marketing and telling the stories and drawing pictures and connecting with people through the other media. That's like a big issue, I think. And I think there's a couple things. One, on a personal level, I don't think anyone has a problem with anybody posting an Instagram story of themselves drinking wine. Like no one even sure. thinks twice about putting that out into the world. Whereas a lot of people would think twice even doing something where there was maybe an edible in the background or anything visible with a pot leaf. Two, I think what you just said about the idea of cannabis being this super harmful thing and the way it has been politicized and stigmatized, there's so much education that has to go into undoing that, not least of which is the facts that we know about what it currently does and does not do, but even how we came to be convinced it was bad in the first place. You know, cannabis was legal in this country a little over 100 years ago, it was made illegal as a way to criminalize immigrants. Most people don't realize that. They think it was illegal because like, there was actually something wrong with it. It was made illegal to criminalize immigrants and it was made illegal so that pharmaceutical companies could restrict it from a medical sense and from a patent sense. You have to go back and do that education so that when you're talking to whether it's your family or your friends or your friends' parents, I get a lot of questions from friends saying, my parents still just are like, hell no, you know, don't touch that stuff. I don't want to talk right. about it. No, it's true. How can I explain this to them? And for us, certainly we call ourselves like a lifestyle publication. One sort of pejorative spin would be that we're glorifying the cannabis lifestyle. I don't think that's what we're trying to do. But what I do try to use is that lifestyle angle in order to Trojan horse a more serious conversation in front of people who maybe wouldn't see it otherwise. I'm not saying anything that's new. You know, I'm not saying that Gossamer is the first person to cover the deeply unequal history of cannabis, but it wasn't reaching people. We're not necessarily reaching everyone either, but I want to make sure that the people that participate or are curious or are drawn to us or drawn to a beautiful bong that we photographed in an issue, I want that to be next to something that contextualizes the history of this industry, of this plant, of the way it is policed and of the way it is sold and of the way it is being monetized now so that they can understand what their dollars and their participation means. In an industry this new, the number one thing that's going to move the needle is consumers. Consumers saying, I don't want to buy this unless I know that you are doing X. I don't want to give you my money unless I know that you are helping make this better for people who have been imprisoned for something that like, we all enjoy. And that is the only thing that's going to change how this industry is being written. And that's how you're seeing that happen, even as states legalize. You know, New York legalized with some of the theoretically most progressive laws around cannabis inequality that we've seen to date, they've now got to go in effect and they've got to be done right. But part of that is because consumers are saying, we want that too. You know, I don't want an industry in New York that is run by nothing but white VCs, though that may well happen because we also know that the second thing that makes things happen is money. So yeah. <laughs> consumer dollars are a huge source yeah. of money and then venture capitalists are a huge source of money. <laughs> right. We have to go through a deprogramming. Not only do we have this history, but billions of dollars were spent in the war on drugs and propaganda yeah. globally 
to convince everyone this is a terrible thing. So, you know, it's success, right? And even yeah. we people who have been indulging all these years weren't quite sure ourselves all that time what whether this was a good thing or not a good thing. A lot of it changed, obviously, with the wellness aspect came in, which is all like mm -hmm. part of the modern new wave cannabis, I think you call it. When did you start thinking about that as part of the culture that you could explore yeah. and write about and report on? Yeah, it's interesting. I have a real love-hate relationship with the word wellness. I'm sure a lot of people do. I don't think I'm alone there. I think from a cannabis perspective, it's really interesting because what we're really talking about here then is, yes, there is certainly a wellness and cannabis conversation, but we're talking about CBD, right? We're talking about the proliferation. I mean, we make CBD tinctures of CBD as a subset of this industry because CBD has so many of the benefits that THC, the cannabinoid, the part of the plant that gets you high, has so many of the same benefits without the intoxication. So there's a way to separate this conversation, right? All of a sudden now you're saying, oh, wait, we, we can really have a conversation about the, the medical benefits or the physical benefits around anxiety, around sleep, around relaxation, around muscle pain. And none, none of that's getting muddied by the idea that, oh, and you're getting high, you know, and you're getting intoxicated. I think that's a benefit in a lot of ways to the industry. I am the daughter of much older German parents. My mother's name is Heidi. She grew up in World War II in and is very conservative. And, and she's in her late 70s. And getting her on board with the fact that I'm in the cannabis industry was a very long, slow conversation. And CBD was the thing that finally pushed it over the edge for her to be able to try a product. It didn't scare her. It didn't get her high and it helped her sleep better. That really helps people understand the value. That said, the flip side of that is it is also a way to really whitewash the industry. Wellness is a very, very, very white business. Um, and I, I'm sort of using that term loosely, but it is. There's a reason that we make fun of Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop, even though I've got a soft spot for Goop too. And that's a, a hugely successful business that she's made. But we're talking about women of a certain caliber of socioeconomic status and the money they're willing to spend on themselves to make themselves feel better. Because theoretically, they also have a lot of time on their hands. You don't have a lot of wellness conversations in poorer communities or often communities of color because people are trying to survive. They're not trying to optimize. They're just trying to survive. Now, when then you start to marry those two things, particularly with wellness and particularly with something like cannabis, which, you know, frankly, is a form of self-medication for a lot of people. And I think we use the term self-medication often as a negative. And I really would like to take that back with regards to cannabis, because sometimes people are smoking because it helps them. It helps them with anxiety. It helps them with pain because they don't have access to traditional medicine because they can't afford traditional medicine because it is the way they are feeding their families. And so then when you start to talk about like, wait, what is cannabis and wellness and who is now marketing it as that versus who has been using it to survive, you start to have a really combative, two things are, are coming at the same answer, but they're not necessarily helping each other. You've spoken as well about cannabis as a luxury product, and even CBD, yeah. it's expensive. Sure. So there's that whole other socioeconomic aspect to this whole industry yeah. at every level, basically. Do you yeah. feel that that's changing or have things evolved since you started going into it professionally and looking at it? I know you've learned a lot about CBD along the way. Mm -hmm. just kind of, I've heard you talk about it as as pretty scientifically. I feel like I did like a crash course. I was never science and chemistry and biology were never my strong suits, but you know, <laughs> you, it's amazing what still percolates back there when you talk about like homeostasis and things like that. But <laughs> cannabis as a luxury industry is something that I think is an inherently fraught conversation. Aspects of it are inevitable. You know, any industry, any space, you're always going to have a spectrum of stuff that a brand wants to position as luxury and exclusive in order to charge more for it. And then you'll always have products that are more mass and more attainable. I think the best brands straddle those really well, you know, or have the ability to feel 
sophisticated while still being accessible. But I think you're always going to see the spread. I just think this goes back to my point earlier, which is I don't really care what someone wants to do in the cannabis space. If they want to put out the Hermes of weed or whatever, like (laughs) that's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think there's a lot of brands that claim they're the Hermes of weed, which is what's so funny about it. If they're not the the Apple Apple store of weed. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Apple or Hermes of weed. You know, that's fine. If that's like your brand marketing proposition and that's like the angle you want to take, I have no... I was I was just going to say, often that's actually the media calls them that. It's not that they sure. come out and say, I'm the Hermes. I think you're talking about Bebo, which has had the New York Times give them that label. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love Bebo. I think there is one brand that I won't say that definitely referred to themselves as that. Um, they followed, yeah. <laughs> but I have no problem with that. Everyone's got to pick a lane and pick their angle. My thing, though, is the more you charge, the more you should have to be able to give back. And the more you charge, the more you're reaching an extremely influential subset or community or a group of customers who have a lot of money in order to affect change. And so to me, the more luxury your brand is, the more obligation and the more you should be giving back. However you want to market it. And I think some people have described Gossamer as luxury. I know from the get-go internally, we have like said, we are not luxury. We've always wanted to be quality. And the way we've described that is like sometimes the best meal of your life costs $2 and sometimes the best meal of your life costs $300. They're both like exceptional. They're not necessarily just better or worse because of cost. And so that's sort of the framework through which we think about what we do with Gossamer. But I really just think if you're in the space and want to make money and unless you're running a nonprofit, that's what we're all trying to do. You should think long and hard about what you are doing with that money and how much of it uh, you're doing that with. We talked about stigmatization with cannabis in general for everyone, but I think women are even more stigmatized because it's not a good look for a stoned woman, particularly in culture overall, even though we love looking at the photos on Instagram of yeah. hashtag a cannabis, uh, which is basically an <laughs> endless stream yeah. of women and weed and so on. Was that an additional factor for you as well? And how do you feel oh, about that? Sure. T- yeah. And is it changing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, look, I think historically the industry or the consumer hasn't necessarily, it's not dominated by men. It's just been largely marketed to by men and for men, but women have always smoked weed. I think anything that is a little subversive or, you know, feels edgy is always going to be harder on women than it is on men. It's also always going to be harder on people of color than it is on white women. So like there's a sliding scale here. Um, I get that. When we launched, we definitely wanted to make sure we were speaking to and reaching women, but we are not a for women only brand. And part of that is While I absolutely love and respect any brand or publication that does do that, you know, there's a reason people have to do that in order to really carve out that space and say, we're going to take up a little more room so that we get, you know, maybe even close to parity. For us, I wanted to make it just feel across the board as inclusive as possible. And I think one of my favorite compliments is when male reader is sort of saying like, so what's your audience breakdown? Or like, so, you know, is it mostly men? And I say like, no, we're actually like 79% female. And, you know, a guy will say to me like, oh, I thought this was for me. And it's Mm. like, you know what it is? (laughs) Those two things are not mutually exclusive, especially as we continue to progress the conversation around what is for men or for women or like what is masculine versus feminine. And those lines get increasingly blurred. You have to have a larger conversation around what it means to make something that you think is for one specific gender, so to speak, or or gender identity. Yeah, the whole category of women's magazines is up for grabs. Did you envision it as a magazine for women originally? Yes. Again, we wanted to make sure we were reaching women, so like female forward, but we definitely envisioned it as a magazine. I don't know if that was your question, but definitely as a magazine out of the gate. The other side of it is I I also firmly believe that where women go, men follow. (laughs) Um, I do. (laughs) And that is true both, you know, on a sort of superficial level, but also on a financial level, on a who's making the real decisions in a household on a day to day basis. When you talk about what that sort of like division of labor looks like and 
how if a woman decides she really likes something or thinks something is valuable or worth engaging with, like, you know, you're going to get a community and a family behind her that is going to follow. So for us, it was definitely important. And again, women were underserved. There was nothing. It's funny because sometimes I get asked in interviews or, or people talk about like, oh, well, now there's so much for women in weed. But so much, like so much. I don't know. There's still room for everybody. This is such a huge industry. This is such a such an early stage that there is nowhere near enough for anyone yet, as far as I'm concerned. And people should take up as much space as they want. Do you think there's going to be an influx of stores, retail, catering to these consumers, but not necessarily selling product, but selling accessories or kind of products that you show, whether it's plates Mm -hmm. or vases or things that have that aspect of the psychedelic? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think the main reason that's going to be true is because of the unfortunate regulations around cannabis. You know, if you want to be participating in the space and, you know, hopefully making money off of it, if they want to open a store, why try and sell something that is hard for you to sell and potentially illegal or your bank won't take the money when you could sell things that are less regulated. I think that's going to be the entry point for a lot of people, both on the business side and on the consumer side. You know, some people are still nervous walking into a dispensary. My mom, now she's like all in on weed. She loves it. And she lives in Vancouver in Canada where weed is legal. I've taken her to a dispensary a couple of times. I've introduced her to, you know, owners to make her feel special and comfortable and she still won't go alone. It's just not something she's comfortable doing. And so I think for a lot of consumers, their entry point is going to be in a store that is maybe a little more reflective of the traditional spaces they're comfortable in. And that could be a home goods store, that could be a bookstore, that could be a jewelry shop that has accessories as well. People will always go first to where they're most comfortable. So that's going to be the entry point. Yeah, you mentioned Vancouver, and I wanted to talk about that as well, because, you know, the show is sponsored by Burb, which Mm -hmm. is uh, a Vancouver-based retail uh, operation. hometown. uh, Yeah, we should send your mom there. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I I could hook her up there. Maybe she'll like it better Yeah, (laughs) make sure she gets the royal treatment. Yeah. Vancouver itself is such an interesting story that I don't think people really know enough about here as Mm -hmm. kind of the Amsterdam of North America of of what it was all these years prior to legalization. Even after legalization, when I started going out there because I would visit Burb, I was kind of shocked to see that they still had stores open in the main streets where you can go in and have a lounge. And it was totally illegal quotes, but nobody really bothered. What was that like growing up in Vancouver? And give me a little taste for that as a kid. I grew up with really, really strict parents. So there was a little bit of like a dichotomy um, (laughs) there in terms of my experience of it. But I definitely like weed was not criminalized in my mind as a kid. I recognize Of course, some of that could have had to do with like the neighborhoods in which I was hanging out and smoking weed. But I certainly remember as a teenager, like I I have the most visceral memory of sharing a joint with some friends near a playground, I think. And a couple of cops like walking over and being like, could you guys just like take it down the block a little bit? Like at least try to just hide it a little bit. Then how old were you then? I don't know, 15 maybe young. (laughs) Uh, And I I recognize the immense amount of privilege in that story. I would love to talk to people who don't look like me and and what their experience was and what neighborhoods they were in. But I do think that there is something to Vancouver that cuts a little bit beyond socioeconomic or color of your skin policing of weed. It was very much a part of the culture of like cannabis has been grown in British Columbia forever. I remember as a kid, we used to drive up into the interior of BC, like Kamloops, Vernon, Prince George. I did a lot of camping and, and outdoor stuff as a kid. And I remember even my parents sort of pointing at the fields we were driving by. I think they were often marketed as like ginseng fields, um, but they were always oh, like, really? that's weed. <laughs> They'd be like, no, those are all the cannabis fields. Like you see them going by. So it was something that I just knew of was part of the British Columbia ecosystem. I think it's a similar experience to maybe how a lot of people who grew up in San Francisco or or parts of California feel about weed, where it just feels culturally there. Right. I remember coming to New York for college and being extremely proud of BC Bud. Once I finally smoked in the US and whatever I was getting in New York in college in the time was 
probably not very not very good and just being astonished like sort of being like oh this is what you guys smoke (laughs) um and also what that did to my tolerance when I went back for the holidays or for summer and I would try and smoke the weed that my friends were smoking and I'd be like just laid out um (laughs) so yeah I do feel some like hometown pride it's just funny because it's hard to get a sense of what the rest of the world thinks about it. But I, there is definitely a sense of pride for if, if you are someone who smokes weed and you're from British Columbia, you feel pretty good about the the weed you're smoking. Yeah. And you grew up there and yeah. it's just unusual. Cause then when you come to New York, suddenly you have to hide everything. Uh, it's, you know, yeah. this is how we lived like forever. Now you're allowed to have smoke in the street, apparently, right? Yeah. You can smoke in the street. But it still have- feels weird. I still don't feel super comfortable doing that. Even though I know it's fine. Also, I think part of me feels like maybe I'll be fine. But is that really true for everyone else? It doesn't feel like something I feel comfortable taking advantage of until I can feel assured that everyone has that same level of comfort. And I think New York, unfortunately, with the way it's policed is still a little bit. I think we're a ways away from that. Yeah, well, it's much better, I have to say that. And we'll see, because even now with the new laws, it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen when they write up, because they haven't actually written up the law. So we don't really know what's going to happen. And we're already hearing of people complaining about smelling weed on the street everywhere you go and things like that. You'll be fine. Your kids will be fine. Everyone's going to be fine. (laughs) Everyone's quote unquote. Um, (laughs) The tagline for your magazine is a magazine for people who also smoke, which I love because that's how I feel about this podcast as well. It's not, you know, today we're talking a lot about weed because that's kind of the subject. You have a magazine and that's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about other things as well, but sometimes I'll have guests on that don't have anything to do with it. And we don't even mention it. But I feel like it still connects because the people who are still going to be interested in those people just because you smoke doesn't mean, just going back briefly to you and your partner, the yin and yang, the social Mm -hmm. and the more design (laughs) side, Mm -hmm. not to say you're not into it, but that was primarily his focus, you know, as you were saying. I think it's a great mix because then you come up with something that has both elements and- you know, it's really enjoyable. So, and for us, it felt like a little bit more inclusive. I mean, you were also talking about going down the Instagram hole of women smoking weed. And yeah, I work in this industry and I'm sort of like the more public facing partner of the company. So I obviously am very comfortable talking about weed, but if not for that, I would never be someone posting hashtag women. Weed. <laughs> that's no chance. That's just not, I don't think that's the most interesting thing about me, or that's not the thing that I want to put out first. And where that tagline came from was that exact feeling of if you're introducing yourself to someone, you know, and you're starting casual conversation, you're not, hi, I'm Verena. I smoke weed. You know, that's like the 10th thing or the 12th thing or the 20th thing. <laughs> no, we should try that. Someone, that <laughs> I think it'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. That someone finds out about you. And so we wanted it to speak to people who smoke weed, but aren't defined by that. In the same way, like I love wine and I can get really into it, but I'm not a sommelier. And so my love of wine doesn't define me. My love of weed doesn't define me. That said, I think that there are certain attributes that we felt a community of people who smoke weed had in common. That's not to say everybody, because, you know, weed is also, or cannabis is, very bipartisan. You know, most people don't necessarily realize that, but it's like 50-50 down the party lines in terms of like who likes weed and who wants it legalized for different reasons, obviously. Not all weed smokers are the same. For us, the community that we wanted to reach and, and that we wanted to build or offer a space to are people who are curious. I think if you are willing to smoke weed or try a substance that is going to alter your perception, and that could be anything, you're a little more open-minded and curious. You're willing to put yourself in maybe a slightly uncomfortable space to look at something from a different perspective. I think you are probably or can be empathetic or more empathetic because you have a curiosity about other experiences and other people's lived experiences. I think you are intellectually curious and culturally aware and possibly also care a little bit more about the environment. I'm sort of riffing, but these are all things that I felt like there's a real community here in these. One thing that these people have in common 
could be that they smoke weed and that that informs a lot of the way they look at the world. Again, that's not everyone, but that's the community we wanted that's to That's your to. community. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking yeah. those uh, people who marched on Washington into the Capitol building. Sure. I imagine a lot of them were weed smokers. I'm sure. I'm right? certain. But no that's... interest in reaching that community. They can stay over there. <laughs> yeah. So just to say, so, weed is not politicized. You know, people try to put people, you know, claim yeah. that that represents a certain segment. But no, you know, that's really across all all cultures. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say about the tagline, which like, you know, for people who also smoke weed, for us, it also felt open ended. You know, well, what else do you do? I have an endless curiosity about the way humans, people in general, like the substances we engage with. This is something we've been doing for as long as there have been people, you know, they discover something that across cultures and across time alters their lived experience and they make something of it. And that can be religious and that can be cultural and that can be societal. And I think that that's a really interesting conversation. And as we are also progressing I'll speak to the U.S., but certainly globally around the stigmatization of some of these substances and the way they have been so divorced from their medical and cultural uses. But we could potentially be bringing those things back. I, I'm open. You know, I'm someone who said publicly, I love mushrooms. There are people for whom acid is really helpful. And, and I think the more that you have a conversation around these things and open that up and make sure it doesn't define you, that's more interesting. And then the last thing I'll say is also you start to get older. I know I'm still not that old. I recognize that I'm in my late thirties, but I certainly feel like I hit a point where all of a sudden I realized like everyone around me was just always doing drugs and no one talks about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just think that there needs to be a little more conversation the same way everyone grows up and realizes their parents smoked weed too. You know, if, if, if it wasn't such a secret, what would the conversation actually look like? What would people's experiences look like? How much healthier or safer might they feel if they sort of had an understanding that, oh, wait, like I'm not a deviant for trying this or, or being curious about this experience. That's something that gets me excited and, and interested in furthering that conversation. Uh, just uh, one last point, if we have a few more minutes to talk about, is the legacy sure. culture, you know, the culture of cannabis as it was yeah. prior to when it was the 80s, you know, when medical came in with AIDS patients, that was the entryway for a lot of what we're talking about today. That opened the doors for where we are today. Uh, and so what about all those people who have problems with the new new cannabis world, with the corporate cannabis, with seeing liquor companies and cigarette companies moving into the space, people becoming CEOs of cannabis companies who have actually nothing to do with the culture or history? I have a lot of thoughts. I think the number one thing I feel and think is that people who are newer entrants to the cannabis industry need to educate themselves. I feel that about anything. If I'm going to go do something that is new to me, I am going to research the shit out of it before I start doing it. That's just how I operate. I want to know what I want to make sure I'm coming in with context. I want to make sure I have the baseline education in order to figure out how to do the thing I want to do the most efficient way, the best way, the way that, again, will let me sleep at night. And so I think anybody in this space should be taking a long, hard look at themselves. I don't think everyone has to do something for purely altruistic reasons. That's not realistic. That's not how this world works. But I think you have certainly an obligation to understand the history of what you are walking into to be as open-minded and as welcoming and ideally outright supportive of the people that paved the way for you to even be doing what you're doing. I have a lot of these conversations publicly. And I think the thing that really shocks me too is some of the types of people that we're talking about, let's say like, you know, some business school bros who decide they, they want to come into cannabis because they don't even like smoking weed, but they know that they can make money and there's like a business opportunity. Great. Good for you for recognizing a business opportunity and probably figuring out how to, to earn some revenue off of it. I have no problem. If that's how you want to live your life. Go for it. I don't understand how you can have a business background and not understand the marketing implications of what you're trying to do. And if one of the things we already set out at the outset of this podcast is that 
almost any brand that exists now is expected to have some sort of stance or, or social mission. How do you exist in cannabis without participating in that? Even if the only fucking reason you're doing it is for the marketing bottom line, even if the only reason you're doing it is so that you can protect yourselves and make more money. I would at least argue that like, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you're still doing it. <laughs> and that's what I want to see. I want to see every person who is participating in the space, who is not a legacy member, doing something to make it better. And the first step with that, I think, is education. I said this at the outset. When I first thought about weed and what we could do in the space, I didn't think about it from a social good uh, per social equity perspective. That was the conversation David and I had really early on, where he was sort of like, you know, here's what this actually looks like, how it's policed, who's in prisons, what these prisons look like. It was conversations I had early on with other women, women of color who were interested in the space and were like, holy shit, I love what you're doing. I can't believe that you can say it. I still don't feel comfortable saying it. You know, I, I remember talking to a young woman and saying she worked in the music industry and, and that she would be in meetings with a bunch of men who all talked about smoking weed, but she felt like she couldn't even participate in that conversation because they would look at her like, there was something wrong or bad or that she wasn't as accomplished or successful or, or professional as they were. And all of that happened before we even had a name for the company. I'm still learning. You know, I feel like I am still trying to make sure I understand what the ramifications are. You know, the idea that the, the queer community is almost single-handedly responsible for pushing forward medical marijuana in the first place. Like, that's a conversation that people need to be paying more attention to. We've talked a lot about people of color. We need to also make sure we are including the queer community in California who really like paved the way for this to happen and put literally their lives on the lines in order to be able to have access to this form of medicine. And, you know, do with that information what you will. I think everyone can figure out how that informs their decision making, but you can't make any good decisions if you don't at least have the context. Well, thank you, Verena von Fetten, for educating us and helping us to understand what's going on here and uh, enjoy your magazine and look forward to more issues. Thank you for having me. This was a delight. Cool. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopverb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopverb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.